chapter 2 this morning, Matthew chapter 2. I want to welcome you again if you're watching online or here with us this morning for the first time. We're so glad that you could be with us. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here at Strong Tower. And as we come closer to Christmas this year and celebrating the Advent season, it's a fun time to be able to be together and worship God, whether that's on your couch with your family or around a table with your friends or jogging, wherever you are, uh, we're glad that you could worship together with, with us today. We're going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, verses 13 through 23. Hear the reading of God's word. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he had or when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the wonder of waiting, the wonder of waiting. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, uh, we are grateful again for your word this morning, that you are a God who speaks, you are a God who pursues us, and you've pursued us in your word, and you've revealed to us who you are. And as we celebrate the coming of Jesus in this season and waiting upon him, God, we wait today. We wait today again for you to speak to us in your word, and we ask that you would transform our hearts, our minds in ways that we can never do ourselves. Lord, we come to your word today asking that you would do the miracle of transformation in our life. Change us into your glory, for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. Well, the numbers didn't work. It was the running of the 100th Indianapolis 500, and uh, there was a rookie driver by the name of Alexander Rossi, and he was driving in, in the race for the first time, and, and he was coming up upon 
his last fuel stop, his last pit stop to refuel his car. And as he pulls into the pit stop, his team, you know, gets out and they're fixing things on the car and they're fueling up the, the machine. And, and the owner of the car says to the driver, hey, you've got 85 miles left, but you're not going to have enough fuel. See, the typical car, it, it carries about 19 gallons of fuel and it gets about four miles to the gallon. You thought your car was bad. Four miles to the gallon. So you do the math, that's 76 miles not 85 miles. So over the next 34 laps, this rookie driver was told by the owner of the car, figure it out. So he said, you know, do what you got to do. The teammates around you, maybe they can help or whatever, but figure out a way to get to the finish line. And oh, by the way, he's winning. So he had a 16 second lead. He's pulling out of the pit stop knowing he doesn't have enough fuel to finish the race. He had to figure out how can I do this? And somehow, some way, he made it happen. He's kind of getting his teammates in front of him so he can draft behind them. He's going slow, coasting around the corners, doing whatever he can to try to manage his fuel the best he possibly can. And on the last lap, on the fourth turn of the last lap, it happens, he runs out of gas. And he just coasts that last stretch because he had enough momentum to get all the way there. And he passes the finish line. He wins. And the car stops like dead. It can't move another foot. The team comes out and they're celebrating with him. They give him the, you know, the stereotypical jug of milk that he chugs. I don't know why they do that, but, but he gives him the jug and, and he's celebrating. And everybody's so relieved because he made it to the end on empty. And when I heard that story, I thought that is 2020 in a nutshell, right there. 2020. You you just made it to the finish line. Like we're at the end of the year and all of us are running on fumes and just momentum of what happened months ago. Like we're just getting by because we're running on empty. We're exhausted. We're tired. We're stressed out. We're anxious. There's people doing studies right now that are studying people's mental health from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, and it's pretty much terrible for everybody. I mean, it's just, it's bleak because we've all been going through hard things. I don't know what it is for you, and you know, it could have been financial stress, you, you've lost your job, or maybe you're not sure if you're going to lose your job as the new year comes around. There's so many uncertain things or Maybe for you, it's the election season. You made it through that and and the George Floyd scenario and all the racial trauma that people have experienced. There's so many different things, so many different things that you can come to December of 2020 and feel like I am barely making it to the finish line. And you're just waiting to see, am I going to run out? I mean, you're just waiting. Am I going to run out? But in the waiting... That's where God shows up. It's in the emptiness that God shows up. It's in the exhaustion and the pain and the difficulty that God moves in and He carries you. And so as we come to this series, or we're continuing this series in Advent, and we're calling it Good News, because Advent is all about the good news of waiting. Maybe you're, you're new to the idea of Advent, but it's been around for thousands of years in the church calendar. And in the church calendar, it's the season before Christmas where you celebrate the coming. You're, you're waiting. So you take a, a season of the year and, and you just wait. 
You, you develop this spiritual discipline. Maybe you didn't know it was a spiritual discipline. The spiritual di- discipline of patient waiting. Where you, you're not working, you're just waiting. You're, you're not trying to worry about something, you're just waiting. And you find out as you begin to celebrate this season year after year after year that it's all over the Gospels, this reality of waiting. In fact, it's what Jesus does, and it's what Jesus brings us into and invites us into this life of waiting because it's so crucial to the life of faith, especially in our fast-paced, hectic, chaotic, traumatic world we're in. Waiting. So how does it work? Like, how do we actually wait as we're, we're running on empty, waiting on God to show up? How do we wait? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning briefly, and, and I want to begin with the work, the work. So if you're taking notes, the first thing is the work. Look at verse 13. We see here in the story, uh, we jump into the narrative of Jesus' early uh, birth, and, and this is what it says in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy them. Now, right away we see, if you're familiar with the Bible, we see these parallels between Jesus and Moses. We see this parallel because Jesus is being sought out after this violent dictator in Herod. Herod is this king who's Frustrated, if you were here with us last week, he's frustrated because the Magi come to him and say, there's a new king. And by that, we mean you're not the king. And so Herod's angry, he's furious, he gets violent, he decides he's going to take out all the children just to make sure we get rid of everybody or get rid of Jesus, we're going to get rid of everybody. And so you have this man who's, who's threatened in his powerful position and takes out children. Well, if you know Moses' story, in the book of Exodus, Moses, as a young child, uh, Pharaoh, the king, was threatened in his position of power. And what did he do? He decided to wipe out all the Hebrew children. And so what, what happens? Moses, his mother, has to hide him, and he ends up in the king's palace, which is kind of ironic, but he, he, he's hidden. He's, he's brought into refuge. And so here in Jesus' story, you see the same parallel where Jesus is now uh, brought into refuge, and this time the irony of the story is that he goes to Egypt. In the Old Testament with Moses, Egypt was the place of bondage. Egypt was the place they wanted to get out of. And then God sends Joseph to Egypt for refuge. Right here we see early on in this time period that the Jews actually had a a small Jewish colony within Alexandria in Egypt, and it was actually very populated. There was over a million people, they estimated, that lived in this area. So it was common for Jews to go back and forth between Egypt as a refuge in this time. But what we see here is Matthew is bringing out these parallels intentionally for his Jewish audience who would immediately pick up that Jesus is the new Moses. That Jesus was living out this life that Moses lived out. Now, if you know the story of Moses, he goes to Pharaoh and uh, he, he famously says, as all the kids know, let my people go, right? 
That was what he goes before Pharaoh and he declares to this, this incredibly powerful man, I want all of my people to leave because God has called us to worship in the wilderness and you're going to let them go. And Pharaoh looks at him and says, what are you talking about? I am not letting anybody go. But in that moment, Moses was acting as the covenant representative for God's people. Now stick with me. Moses is telling Pharaoh, I don't want just me to go. I want all my people to go. And so Pharaoh starts to make these deals like, well, you can have these people or this or that. And he says, no, it's all or nothing because I represent all of my people. And eventually, you know, the story, God brings plagues and moves upon Pharaoh's heart to let them go. And they eventually leave. And then you see this covenant reality again as they go into the wilderness. And now they're getting ready to meet with God. And God comes down on the mountain. And it's crazy. I mean, there's smoke, there's fire, there's thunder. Everyone's terrified. They cry out to God and say, we don't want to meet with you. Send Moses. We don't want anything to do with that. You're going to kill us if we meet with you. They're terrified. And so Moses goes up on the mountain and he meets with God for the people. It's this Old Testament idea of a mediator. It's someone who represents you. They, They live for you. And so Matthew is bringing that out in Jesus' story right from the beginning. He's telling these readers, he's saying Jesus is fulfilling that role. And this is why it makes sense. Stick with me in verse 15. It says, and they remain there. That's That's the family, Joseph and Mary and Jesus. They remain there until the death of Herod. Get this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now, This is a strange quote. This is why I gave you all that background. This is a strange quote that Matthew would quote the prophet Hosea, Hosea 11, because it has nothing to do with the Messiah. Now, sometimes in history, people who are skeptical of the Bible, they look at this and they say, look, there's there's errors in the Bible that has nothing to do with the Messiah. Why is he talking about that? That's all about Israel. Well, you got to know the context. you got to know the story. Matthew's pulling this quote out because he's saying that Jesus is living out their history. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is is escaping to Egypt to, to live a recapitulation of Israel's history in his own story. Or to put it another way, he's taking their life that they messed up and he's living it again the way they should have lived. And so he's living out the history of Israel with all of its trials and its hopes in their place. And so if Israel went to Egypt, he's going to Egypt. If Israel came out of Egypt, he's coming out of Egypt, right? He's come to live the life that they were called to live. In other words, Jesus wasn't just uh, liberating us by his death on the cross. He's liberating us by his life on earth. He's liberating us by the life he's living in our place. And so get this, faith isn't primarily about us living for Jesus. It's about Jesus living for us. Some of y'all didn't catch that. This is what he's saying. Faith isn't primarily about us living for Jesus. It's about Jesus living for us. That's how Christianity works. And some of y'all, that sounds shocking or confusing because you never heard of that in your life. You thought Christianity is about you living for Jesus. You thought Christianity was about how many hours you pray. You thought Christianity was about 
how many chapters in the Bible you read in the morning. You thought Christianity was about how many poor people you serve on a Saturday. You thought Christianity was about your political party. You thought Christianity was about keeping your words, you know, somewhat healthy. You know, it, it keep some certain words out of your vocabulary. You thought Christianity was all these things because you thought Christianity was all the things that you did for Jesus. And listen, legalism is trying to live for Jesus without Jesus. It's trying to live for Jesus without Jesus. And it's so easy to do. You can be religious without any religion. You can be spiritual without any spirituality. You can be a Christian without any Christ. You, you just have this, this life where you're just living for God. You're, you're doing all these things. You're hoping that you can sustain yourself. You're hoping that you can maybe earn something with God that He'd be pleased with, and it's not enough. He has to live in your place. This is why the real work of the gospel, listen, is the work of Jesus' life for us. Stick with me. This is deep. Theologians call this his passive obedience, or his, sorry, his active obedience. So his passive obedience is what Jesus received while he died on the cross. In other words, he didn't do anything. He received the death that we deserved. But his active obedience is what he gave in his life for us. Right? So Jesus has to have both. And so many times in American Christianity, we focus on just one, not the other. We focus on Jesus dying on the cross and what he did to take our sin, but the life he lived has no significance. The life he lived is just as essential as the death he died. He needs both to be our Savior. He needs to take our sin, but he needs to give us his life. He needs to give us his righteousness. He had to love perfectly. He had to suffer perfectly. He had to hope perfectly. He had to speak truth perfectly. He had to listen perfectly. He had to do all of it for us so that we could do it through him. That's how it works. And so faith is living through Jesus much more than it is living for him. It's living through him, his life through us. This is why we need a mediator, because our life is a mess. I mean, if you've ever tried to live for Jesus, you know about five minutes in, unless you're faking it, you have failed. You failed. So stop fooling yourself and stop trying to fool other people. You're a mess. But what Jesus offers is a mediator who says, I will live for you. I will live perfectly for you. I've already done it. And then I'll give that life to you. And so I'm not saying, and, and the Bible doesn't say there's not a lot to do. There's plenty to do. It says that he's prepared every good work for you to do. But it's how you do them. You do it through him. It's not, I do it for him to earn something, but he's living through me. And so right from the beginning in Matthew, Matthew is pointing to this reality of Jesus' life that he's coming to live the life that Israel couldn't live. And so when you live that kind of life, it means you have to learn to wait. And this is where we go next, the second point, the waiting. The waiting. Look at verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. 
Now, this is one of the most disturbing scenes in the whole New Testament. I mean, you have Herod wiping out an entire generation of young men. Now, estimates differ about how big Bethlehem is. We know it was small, so it could have been anywhere from 50 to maybe a few hundred young children. But nonetheless, it was terrifying, horrible. And as you read more about Herod's life, you realize this was just par for the course for Herod. He was a ruthless man. Listen to this. When he took uh, office, right away he slaughtered the last remnants of the royal family before him. He executed more than half of the Sanhedrin court, and then he went in and killed 300 court officers. He even murdered his own wife, and then he murdered his wife's mother, and then he murdered three of his sons. Ruthless. Again, Matthew's bringing this out to say Herod is the new Pharaoh. Just like Israel experienced in Egypt, you have Herod as this new Pharaoh figure in the life of Israel. And the question becomes, what are we going to do? How, how, how are we as the people of God supposed to respond? What is Joseph supposed to do with this new holy child that was born in his, his wife's womb? They, were, they, they are told to go to Egypt. And listen, God tells them in verse 13, he says this, Remain there until I tell you. What? Did you hear that? The atrocities that are happening in Bethlehem. Are you serious, God? You want us to just wait? Do nothing? Hide? For how long? What are you talking about? I mean, maybe a couple of days and then we can go find out how we can stop this. What, what do you want us to do? We got to change things. People are dying. Nope. Verse 15, they stay. It says, and they remain there until the death of Herod. That's a long time. Nothing. Waiting. In other words, they had to wait until God changed the scene without them. They had to wait until God changed their circumstances despite them. See, sometimes we get to work, and sometimes we just wait. And the hard work, listen, the real hard work of faith is to wait. It's to wait and do nothing. Robert Samuel never thought that he would start a business when the iPhone 5 was first released. It was the release day, and, and he's waiting in line for the new iPhone 5, and he's so excited, and he had been there a long time, and there's a whole line behind him, and somebody in the line offered him $325 for his spot in line. And he looked at himself, and he thought, I mean, I don't want it that bad. I can wait a couple weeks. And so he took the $325 and went away and re realized, hey, maybe I can do this again. And so he posted some stuff on Craigslist and got another opportunity, made a couple hundred dollars waiting in line for something else, did it again and again. And then he decided, I can make a business out of this. And he started a business in New York City, in New York City, where all he does is wait in line. He's got... Dozens of people who work for him, and all they do is wait in line. They wait in line for donuts. They wait in line for Broadway tickets. They wait in line for lunch for people. They, they just wait in line all the time. And get this, I mean, it's lucrative. I, I don't think you would guess the, the best day he's had, so I'm going to tell you. The best day he's had on the job was $14,000 for waiting in line for Apple products. 
sitting in the air conditioning, waiting. $14,000. He said this when they were interviewing him about his business, which I'm sure is doing well still. He says, we all hate to wait, but now that's my primary work. We all hate to wait, but now that is my primary work. Listen, that's a picture of the gospel right there. I love what Eugene Peterson wrote. He's an author. He said this. He said, waiting in prayer is the disciplined refusal to act before God acts. I love that. Listen, waiting in prayer is the disciplined refusal to act before God acts. The disciplined refusal. It's what Jesus meant when Jesus was talking about this imagery of abiding. Where Jesus calls us to abide in John 15. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying abide. Abiding is about waiting. It's it's refusing to do anything without Jesus. It's refusing intentionally to say, I can't do life on my own. I need Jesus. I need him every moment. I'll wait on him. I'll wait on him until he gives me direction. I'll wait on him until he gives me energy. I'll wait on him until he gives me clarity. I will wait because I can't do anything without him. I'm abiding. I'm waiting. And listen, the hardest time to wait, the hardest time to abide, is when you're suffering without answers. Joseph is told nothing except remain there. I mean, sometimes, I don't know if this has happened to you, you're not given any explanations, you're just given directions. It's like my dad used to say, because I told you so. Like, that's it. That, that's all he tells Joseph. You go to Egypt and wait there until I tell you to, to do something else. And that's what it means to abide in faith, is that sometimes you're in this season where you don't have explanations. You, you don't have things to go on to know how long it's going to be or what it's going to be like. And some of you are in that season right now. You're in that season with your marriage where you've been going through hard times these last eight months or whatever it's been since COVID. You've been isolated. You've been arguing. You've been putting on a front in front of other people to make it look like things are going well, but behind the scenes, it's terrible. And you're wondering, you know, what am I supposed to do? How is this going to get better? Who do I let into my life? Is God going to show up? All these questions are swirling. Can we make it in this? And Jesus is saying, abide in me. Abide. Maybe for you, it's Something else, you've been battling a sin in your life that has crept back in and it's been so hard because you don't know what to do with it. You thought you defeated this years ago and it's back in your life now and you're wondering, can I overcome it again or is this something I need to deal with in a different way? What is this? What's going on? And Jesus is saying, abide in me. Abide. But how do you do that? But whatever your situation is, you got to ask, how do I actually do that? Well, sorry to break it to you, but a little bit of this, abiding is an art. It's an art. In other words, it's, it's relational, not mechanical. It's kind of like asking somebody, how do you fall in love? Well, you do. 
I mean, you can't put a, a, a step by step. And that's why sometimes I think in American Christianity, we, we have made everything so efficient and effective and we've got it down into a process that I want to know what are my six steps to have a good relationship with God. And Jesus doesn't give you steps. He says, abide. I love one, one person. He described to me like this. He said, abiding means to waste time with God. I love that. You're just wasting time. There, there's no agenda. There's no, uh, you know, I've got this I got to get done. I got this I got to get done. Or, or I'm coming with these things we need to talk about. It's, it's just, I want to be with you. That's what abiding means. It's I want to be present. I just want to waste time with you, God. And, and we may talk about things I'm angry about. We may talk about things I'm celebrating. We may talk about things I don't understand. We may talk about all kinds of things, but I primarily want to be with you you. I want to abide. I want to remain and stay put long enough for you to do something in me, long enough for you to do something that I couldn't do. See, that's how you know it's God working in your life, when you know that there are things that have changed that you could have never changed on your own. And that's what abiding is. When Jesus says, you can't do anything without me, he's serious. The things you can do without him, they're not really worth it but the things you can do with him. You can only do with him. And he says, I want you to stay there. I want you to remain. Whatever's going on, however hard it is, however confusing it is, I want you to stay there. And it's in that waiting with God that God does his greatest work. His work for us begins to take shape in us. And the longer we wait, the greater our wonder grows. And this is the last point, the wonder the wonder. Matthew then quotes another Old Testament prophet in verse 17, the prophet uh, Jeremiah. He says this, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now follow me for a second. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, Rachel was one of the wives of Jacob, and she had a son named Benjamin. And in giving birth to Benjamin, she died in childbirth, and she became known in the, in the Jewish community since then as the sorrowful mother of Israel because she was you know, so sad that she died and, and, and didn't get to live to see her child and, and, and so much you know, that, that her tomb kind of became this place that people would go to weep. They would go and they would gather around when they were dealing with difficult times and they would weep with Rachel. She was the weeping mother. And so Jeremiah the prophet later on brings out this imagery, this, this cultural reality of, of her, her legacy. And, and he says as they're going into captivity with Babylon that Rachel is weeping over the children of Israel. Just as she was weeping before, she's weeping from her tomb. And so Matthew picks up on this same imagery that Jeremiah does, and Matthew says, now Rachel is weeping again. Rachel is weeping as she sees these children in Bethlehem dying, and she's weeping uh, just as sad, just as sorrowful as she was, as Israel was going into captivity. But when he, listen, when he quotes the pain of Jeremiah 31, he's also bringing into our remembrance the, the promise that's later in that chapter. Because later in Jeremiah chapter 31, God will redeem His people from their situation, and He says, I'm going to call you out of your bondage. So in other words, you're going in, but I'm going to promise to bring you out. 
And so as they are experiencing this pain and this suffering in Jesus' birth story, the angel tells Joseph the same promise in verse 20. He says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Did you catch it? He says it. Go to the land of Israel. Leave Egypt and go to the land. Leave the place of bondage and go to the place of freedom. Leave the place of sin and go to the place of redemption. He's bringing them out just as God would do through Jesus. Jesus, remember, he is playing the role of our mediator, of our representative. And so as they came out of Egypt and went into the land, so Jesus does. He comes out of Egypt and he goes into the land. Why? Because the waiting is over. The weeping is over. The sin and the misery, although brutal, isn't final. Jesus has come. The promised Messiah, the one that Jeremiah was promising would come, the wait is over. He has arrived, and he's come to bring life out of death. See, it's the waiting. It's the waiting is where God brings life out of death. It's in the waiting. That's the wonder of waiting. Have you ever thought about what the greatest miracle of Jesus is? Many people say it's his resurrection, but have you ever thought about his second greatest miracle? It's not when he turned water into wine. It's not when he fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread. It's not when he healed the lepers and, and, and even when he brought Lazarus back from death. It's not those things. You know what the second greatest miracle of Jesus is? Waiting. Waiting on the cross. You have Jesus, the Son of God, who's perfect in every way, waiting on the cross, nailed in our place to this wooden throne that He didn't deserve. And what happens? The crowds are mocking Him. They're saying, if you're the Son of God, come down. In other words, if you're the Son of God, if you are who you say you are, hurry up and fix your problem. If you are the person you say you are who has all power, go ahead and deliver yourself. If you are who you say you are, go ahead and make your life comfortable. Stop the waiting. Just bring it about. And what does Jesus do? He waits. He waits and he endures and he abides with his Father. Even in the darkness, even as the wrath of God is poured out on him, what does he do? He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the midst of the darkest moment of his life, Jesus waits. He waits. He entered into the shame and misery of our sin, waiting. He, he, he says, I'm going to wait as I'm, I'm, I'm moving into this place of, of shame and, and difficulty and suffering. He abided on the cross for you and me. He waited as the fullness was poured out on Him. He waited as the Father forsook Him in our place. He waited as the breath of His body literally was choked out of Him until He breathed His last. And He said, it is finished. But he waited for you and me. He waited for us. And so it's in Jesus' waiting on the cross that he brings life out of very death. This is the scandal of the cross. This is the foolishness of the cross. This is the foolishness that confounds the wise. This is the miracle that leaves our hearts in wonder that God would use death to bring life. That God would, would use pain to bring about His promise. And God says the same to us as He says, take up your cross and follow me. He says, listen, if you wait on me, I will do the greatest work you've ever seen in you if you wait. 
I'll do the greatest work, not only in you, but through you, if you wait on me. If you wait with me in Egypt, I'll bring about the promise. If you wait with me in bondage, I'll bring about the promise. If you wait with me in your suffering and your sin, I'll bring about the promise. If you just be still and know that I'm God. It was 1943 when Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was imprisoned by Hitler. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a local pastor and scholar, and he was uh, one of the 800 prisoners who was awaiting execution. And just a year before, he had been celebrating Advent with his congregation and was preaching about this same theme of waiting on Jesus. And now a year later, he finds himself imprisoned in a Nazi camp. And he's awaiting his execution, and he's writing these letters back and forth to different friends and people. And you can actually uh, purchase his letters. They publish them later on. And he's writing letters to his fiancée. And he's writing to his fiancée, and he's talking to her about reflecting on this Advent season from a Nazi prison. And this is what he says in his letter to her. He says, A prison cell in which one waits and hopes reminds us that we are completely dependent on the door of freedom to be opened from the outside. Did you catch that? It reminds us that we are completely dependent on the door of freedom to be opened from the outside. That's Advent. Advent is waiting for God to open the door. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to do just that, to open the door of freedom, to open the door to have a relationship with Him, to open the door to have hope again, to open the door to have faith again, to open the door to love again, to open the door to know God, to really know Him. And Jesus says today, I've, I've opened that door. I've opened it. Will, will you walk through it and know me? Will you know me? Will you abide with me? Will you remain with me? Will you wait with me? Because what he did in his life and in his death is what makes us have access. It opens the door of where we find ourselves. It's out of the cross that he brings resurrection. It's out of death that he brings life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in wonder at our Lord Jesus who would, who would wait in our place on the cross where I would have gotten off immediately. I would have never even got on. I would have never taken the place of sinners and enemies and loved in such a sacrificial divine love. And yet you do. And you endure. And you wait. Evil doesn't push you away. It draws you in. And God, I'm so impressed that as you call us to that, you, you don't leave us alone. You, you invite us to remain in you, to abide in you. And as Jesus promised, you will be with us. And so God, today as we Look at this passage and consider it for our own lives and remember the gospel once again. Help us to wait with hope. Help us to wait with faith, knowing that you are the God who loves us beyond any of our abilities. You're the one who lives for us, despite how we've lived. Give us faith to endure in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.